Would you like to lose 30, 50, 100 pounds or more? Healthy Wager lets you bet on your weight loss and pays up to $10,000. Just go to HealthyWager22.com right now to lose weight and win cash. There's nothing more motivating than real cash prizes. Tessa won over $5,000 for losing 87 pounds. Christian won over $2,400 for losing 60 pounds. Use the free prize calculator to find your prize. It's super fun. Go to HealthyWager22.com. The big your goal, the bigger your prize. Just go to HealthyWager22.com and get guaranteed real cash prizes when you hit your goal. Featured on Good Morning America and the Today Show, Healthy Wager has paid out over $20 million with lots of winners every single day. Cash in on your weight loss today. We're offering huge cash prizes right now. So go to HealthyWager22.com and make your healthy wager to lose weight. Go to HealthyWager22.com. That's HealthyWager22.com. HealthyWager22.com. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Maya Culpa Podcast. My guest today is Tony Schwartz, author of Donald Trump's myth-defining work, The Art of the Deal. Long before the world wrestled with questions of Trump's sanity and soul, Schwartz was busy shadowing the future president as his ghostwriter. Granted unprecedented access to Trump over an 18-month period, Schwartz created the narrative that defined Donald J. Trump for millions of Americans and ultimately propelled him into the White House. Oh, look! The Art of the Deal. Come here, give me that book. I love that book. I said it the other night. My second favorite book of all time. What's my first favorite book? The Bible. The Bible. First published in 1987, Trump, The Art of the Deal, spent 48 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestseller list ultimately moving over 1.1 million units in hardcover alone, and is the fifth best-selling business book of all time. The importance of it in building the Trump myth cannot be overstated. Schwartz paints a portrait of Trump as an unabashed winner with an unerring instinct for making money, which deeply resonated with millions of Americans, myself included. In 1987, I wrote the opening sentences of my first book, the art of the deal. They go like this. I don't do it for the money. I've got enough, much more than I'll ever need. I do it to do it. Deals are my art form. Other people paint beautifully on canvas or write wonderful poetry. I like making deals, preferably big deals. That's how I get my kicks. I read the book twice when it came out, thinking it would divine a secret path for me to untold riches. I was just a junior in college at the time, a 21-year-old pisher with a side hustle scalping tickets at Madison Square Garden. For me, the book was a confirmation that I was on the right path. Not so much with the tickets, but in the entrepreneurial ethos it prescribed. The book's description of boardroom machinations and Trump real estate victories were thrilling and became a model for my own future ambitions. For Donald Trump, the book propelled him to unimaginable fame. If you're old enough to remember the late 80s, Donald Trump was everywhere. His name became shorthand for unimaginable wealth and success. 
Get ready for another incredible lifestyles, your VIP journey into the lives and loves of today's winners who really know how to enjoy the great things of life. Donald Trump gave Michael Jackson a personal tour of his $1.2 billion extravaganza. Granted, this was before his casinos began to crumble and he faced his first bout with bankruptcy. He became prince of the city. His name regularly splashed across the pages of the New York Post and the New York Daily News. He hosted Saturday Night Live. Yes? Mr. Trump, you wanted me to remind you about the Live from New York at Saturday Night? Oh, yeah. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! He appeared on the cover of Playboy and was a guest on Johnny Carson. In 1987, that was as close to the trifecta of fame as you can get. It's hard to imagine now, because Trump is such a noxious and ubiquitous presence in our lives. But there was once a time when he was still a semi-obscure real estate developer, a kind of regional oddity like Crazy Eddie, Dr. Z, or even Robin Bird. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. He was a creature of New York whose dark powers seemed to fade once you crossed the George Washington Bridge. It was Art of the Deal which changed all that. Welcome to our broadcast. Tonight we spend the hour with a man who has already left his own unique mark on the face and history of New York City. If Donald Trump is not in the news for a high-stakes deal or a controversial new development, he may be in the gossip columns with his latest relationship. There was one tiny problem, though. The whole book is a work of total fucking fiction. The Donald you see in those pages is merely a character created by Tony Schwartz because the real Donald Trump couldn't sit still long enough to be interviewed. He asked Trump to recount his childhood, but would quickly become bored and irritable. Schwartz was looking for his rosebud, but there would be no Citizen Kane moment with Donald Trump. He was by nature completely forward-looking and uninterested in the past, unless the information it revealed accrued to his benefit. Schwartz likened this time spent with Trump to a kindergartner who can't sit still in the classroom. The more Schwartz pressed, the more agitated Trump would become, and after 20 minutes he would stop the interview. This process repeated itself for weeks on end. Schwartz later recounted to the New Yorker that it's impossible to keep him focused on any topic other than his own self-aggrandizement for more than a few minutes. So, like most people who deal with Donald Trump, he regretted it almost immediately. But Schwartz had signed a lucrative contract for the book, which gave him $250,000 up front and 50% of the book's royalty. For a young writer with a family, it promised him financial security and future creative freedom, so he stuck it out. Unable to piece together any semblance of the real Donald Trump, he instead focused on Trump's many business deals and started listening in on his phone conversations, day in and day out, for close to a year. But this posed a problem as well. Trump was, and is, a pathological liar. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. That speech was a home run. They loved it. They gave me a standing ovation for a long period of time. They never even sat down, most of them, during the speech. The business community and the labor community. You saw that with the labor leaders that came out. One of them said it was the single greatest meeting I've ever had with anybody. It's the highlight of my life. He lied like he breathed. Everything was enhanced all the time, no matter the subject. From the size of his buildings to his sexual prowess, he would constantly inflate and exaggerate. If he could lie to you about the weather or the name of his dog, he would. 
He lied for sport. He lied strategically. And he lied vindictively. That's just who he was. But Schwartz needed to put a positive spin on what was Trump's most essential trait. So he invented a term for Trump's pathological lying, calling it truthful hyperbole, and writing in Art of the Deal that I play to people's fantasies. People want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. It's an innocent form of exaggeration, and it's a very effective form of promotion. This served as a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free card for Donald Trump, and it created the monster we know today. Had Trump not run for president in 2016, Tony Schwartz would have remained silent about Art of the Deal. And I didn't think about Donald Trump much for 27 years, but when he decided to run for president, given what I knew about him and given how rarely there is someone who does know him well, speaks up about what they know, I simply felt an obligation to do it. Part of the deal of ghostwriting a book is you don't write out on the subject afterwards to the world about their terrible behavior. Besides, Schwartz had lived an entirely different life since the book's publication and profited generously from its ongoing royalties. His life was far away from Donald Trump's. He ran a profitable and innovative mindfulness consultancy for top Fortune 500 companies. He meditated and lived his life. His only reminder of Donald Trump was when the royalty checks arrived. But when Trump descended the gaudy golden escalator in Trump Tower on the fateful June day in 2015, he held up the book that made him famous and declared that what America needed was the man who wrote Art of the Deal to be president. Our country needs a truly great leader. And we need a truly great leader now. We need a leader that wrote the art of the deal. Tony Schwartz had created a monster. In his forthcoming memoir, Dealing with the Devil, Schwartz recounts his entire experience writing Art of the Deal, and he tries to reconcile his complicated relationship with a book that gave him his financial freedom, but cost him his career and journalistic reputation. Like all of us who deal with Donald Trump, the record is both contradictory and compromised. Schwartz must reconcile that what he did, he did for money, and must own the consequences thereafter. None of us get to be pure in this story, and much like myself, Schwartz's memoir is his own personal mea culpa for the book he wrote over three decades ago and the damage it did and the monster it helped create. Let's listen now to that conversation. So, Tony, the New York Times story on Donald Trump's taxes finally punctured the myth around him as a businessman that you helped to create 35 years ago with Ed Kozner, who called you Trump's Dr. Frankenstein. How'd the release of that story make you feel? My, my first answer, Michael, is hopeful because it came out so close to the election and anything that further exposes the uh, phoniness of the image that Trump has managed to sustain is a positive from my perspective because it makes it less likely that he gets reelected. Um, certainly no surprise whatsoever. Uh, you know, as, as much as you knew it, I knew it, that he would do anything possible, including many, many illegal things to avoid paying taxes. So uh, no surprise, but good news. I, I, I agree with you, Tony, on that. Now, you first came to the book project 
after writing a tough New York Magazine profile on Trump, which detailed his often nasty, behind-the-scenes work evicting rent-controlled tenants. Now, it was an unflattering portrait of Trump, or at least it would be considered unflattering by a normal, non-psychotic person. You remember that story? I certainly do. (laughs) Tell me about it. Well, you know, I was a staff writer at New York Magazine in 1985 when I, you know, Trump was starting to get more significant attention because Trump Tower was open and actually, you know, looked like a quite successful project. And uh, so the rap on Trump was actually mostly positive up until that point, or at least nominally positive. And then I heard about what was going on at this building. And it's something I had written about all the way back when I was 19 years old as a summer intern at the Village Voice, this practice of tenant relocation, which of course is a euphemism for harassing tenants in any way possible to get them to leave. Um, So I just was fascinated by the story, like any reporter would be. And when I went in to do it, um, what I discovered very quickly is not only was Trump doing all the things that uh, other large owners of buildings that were rent control and rent stabilized were doing to get rid of those tenants, but he was doing it unbelievably incompetently. It was a yeah. Well, then, you know, Tony, I got to stop you there for a second because I owned about 107 or 108 apartments in several buildings here in Manhattan, and you know, we had rent stabilized tenants, rent control tenants, and so on. I never behaved anywhere in the same realm as Trump. Actually, when people wanted to leave, they wanted to get bought out of their leases. I turned around and said, "I'd rather you actually stay." I know what my cash flow is on the building. Things that he did were out of control. I'm sorry, please continue. Yeah, so he, um, he, this was the irony, Michael, is that he wasn't succeeding at it. You know, most of the people who harassed tenants uh, were actually quite successful at it. And that was the end of their living in those buildings. Trump couldn't get them to leave because what he didn't count on was that the building was 100 Central Park South, a prime location, and there were large, gorgeous apartments in that building. And of course, they were inhabited by privileged people, people who were, uh, you know, had used their, used their influence to get those apartments, and they were smart enough to hire a lawyer, a very good lawyer, and to fight Trump. And, you know, it went on for years and years. The really interesting thing about the piece, of course, as you were suggesting, is that um, I thought it was the end of my relationship, such as it was, uh, with Trump. I didn't think I'd ever speak to him again because he'd be so enraged by the piece I wrote. And instead, he wrote me a fan letter and, you know, had it framed and put it up on his wall. Because the fact that the cover picture, uh, which was an illustration, made him look like a thug, didn't bother him a bit. He wanted to be seen as a tough guy, in part because, as you know, perhaps better than anyone, he's a coward. You know, all bullies are cowards. And the idea that he could look tough was very appealing to him. Actually, Tony, in furtherance of what you just said about Trump not being a tough guy, you actually once later told the New Yorkers, Jane Mayer, in a 2016 profile that Trump didn't fit any model of human being I'd ever met, that he was obsessed with publicity and he didn't care what you wrote. He went on. Trump only takes two positions. Either you're a scummy loser, liar, whatever, or you're the greatest. I became the greatest. 
He wanted to be seen as a tough guy, and he loved being on the cover. Did he ask you about that cover? Did he talk to you about the cover? That's, as you know, what he talks about. Because his entire office, as you know from being in it, is filled with pictures of him on covers, whether it's GQ, whether it was Forbes, whether it was regarding, you know, the Trump shuttle, whatever it was, they're all over his walls. Not only those walls in his office, but they adorn the walls running all the way down to my office. Photos of him in, on the covers of magazines put into gold gilded frames. What's, what do you think his deal is with covers and gold gilded frames? Being on the cover, it's a, it's a reminder to him that he exists. It's proof that the inner experience, the one that he deeply suppresses of worthlessness, is being contradicted by the fact that he's on a cover. The problem for Trump is that for all the coverage he's gotten, for all the money he's had, whatever amount that is, it's way more than nearly, you know, 99% plus of the population, he has always been a leaky balloon. You know, the, the, you pour in the uh, attention, the adulation, the money, and it pours out uh, very, very quickly. So it's almost literally trying to remind himself that he's alive. But you probably recall that in the GQ magazine that adorned Trump on the cover, it was a horrible article about him. And yet that was one of his favorite photos. There were three or four of them that I've seen, whether it was in his office, on the outside wall, in at the Doral or in the post office in Washington. I mean, he literally had several of them made. And yet the article was atrocious. And he ended, it was written by Graydon Carter, who later, you know, was at Spy uh, Magazine then, you know, criticizing Trump regularly, and then went to Vanity Fair. And, uh, you know, Trump saw Graydon Carter as one of his greatest critics and, you know, was most eviscerating in talking about him. So that- Yeah, I was actually once tasked with contacting Graydon. Uh, Trump ripped out this article that was written and it had this very small one or two lines about him. And it said, you know, this guy is scum, call and threaten him. That's <laughs> so perfect. And, and it's, because, right. it's because he, you know, Carter, Carter's piece, and particularly what he said about him in Spy subsequently, um, was got under Trump's skin, that, that he, had, he had the instinct for how to get under skin. So criticizing his looks, which he did by calling him a short-fingered fingered vulgarian, um, he didn't care about being called a vulgarian. No, I mean, it was the short fingers. What it is. But yeah. Yeah. I, I have a few of those. Actually, in my, in my book, Disloyal, I show a photo of Trump on the cover of Your Art of the Deal, and Trump actually circled his hands with his gold marker, and he gave it to me, and he asked me straight up, do I really have small hands? I didn't really know what to say to him. I was going, uh, you know, no, boss, I mean, they're actually, they're perfect for your body size. But, you know, moving on, Tony, I, I wanted to ask you, according to your memoir that you now have out called Dealing with the Devil, you wrote in it that Trump read that profile piece, that 2016 profile piece, and called you after it came out with a host of empty threats. You remember that call and what he said to you? Yeah, so Jane Mayer had... Uh 
convinced me after many months of going back and forth in my head about whether it would, we're now in the uh, election campaign, about whether it would have any positive impact for me to speak out. I'd gone back and forth. And finally, Jane, because I had great respect for her and I knew the New Yorker had extremely high credibility, convinced me that her, that if she wrote a piece, it would have more impact than if I wrote one myself. And so she went and wrote, reported the piece, meaning she had a series of conversations with me and other people uh, about the writing of The Art of the Deal. And then, uh, as The New Yorker famously does, they were fact-checking, you know, every imaginable detail of it. And the first night of the Republican convention, where you probably were. uh, I was there. You were there. um, Trump got a call from the New Yorker fact-checkers. And, you know, the first question was, you know, do you know Tony Schwartz? Yes. Maybe even what do you think of him? And he was actually relatively positive. And then he said, well, you know, I don't think Tony feels that way. This is a fact checker. Let me, let me tell you, let me get you to answer some of these questions about things he said about you. So he gets off that call. It's five in the afternoon. I'm driving up the West Side Highway and my phone rings. It's not clear who it is. It's, you know, no caller ID. Um, and it's Trump. And, you know, the first thing he says to me, uh, he said to me, which you will appreciate is, Tony, I hear that you're not going to support me. And I said, that, that's true. And <laughs> you said a lot of nasty things about me. And I said, oh, shocker. You're, exactly. Donald, you're running for president. That's a really important thing. That's a really important job. And I'm going to say what I think is so. And he said, Tony, this is the part I thought you would recognize and resonate with. You're totally disloyal. You're totally disloyal. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that word a few times myself. Yeah, you, you might have heard that word. And uh, of course, that's a Trump. That's a Trump. Tactic. It's a Trumpism. It's a, yeah, it's a Trumpism. Yep. And so um, that call ended when he hung up on me and said, have a nice life. And that was effectively the last time I've uh, talked to him. Um, and, uh, you know, it was quintessential Trump. When that piece actually came out a few days later. He then had his lawyer, one of his lawyers, write a threatening letter saying he was going to sue me in the way that uh, he always did. And you probably handled a lot of those. Yeah, I know I did. And I also received a couple of those letters as a result of my book. <laughs> exactly. You, uh, you know, Tony, I also want to say one of the, one of the pictures that adorns on his wall was a profile piece in Playboy magazine. Now, I understand that you were working on a pro, that profile piece on Trump for Playboy. When he first came up with the idea, he broached the idea of you writing his autobiography. Was he trying to schmooze you into writing a sexy piece about him for Playboy? What was the deal with that? Well, I came in, and, and I don't give it myself any credit for this in the same way that I don't, uh, I, I don't feel anything but shame for having decided to do the book with him. But I was drawn to him just like every other reporter because he was like a walking traffic accident. You know, he was always going to do something that violated the norms, that was out of the ordinary, that was that was 
uh, you know, shocking to one degree or another. And so you mean, you mean like calling himself John Barron and leaking stories about himself that he's dating the most beautiful women in the world, that he's the richest guy in the world, that I just heard through the grapevine that I'm working on, that Donald Trump is working on a deal worth a billion dollars at a time that we didn't even have a billionaire in this country. You mean something like that? I do. Uh, <laughs> I do. And so, so Trump, I was drawn to him as so many reporters were for the fact that he would do outrageous things like that because it's fun to write about them. So I went there to do the Playboy interview in Trump Tower with him after I'd written that very critical New York Magazine piece. And I sat down and I started talking to him and he said, uh, I, I, I started asking him questions and he had very, very superficial answers to my questions. Well, the Playboy interview is only about the answers. It's not the reporter writing a profile. It's a Q&A. And I said, look, Donald, I can do the Q here, but I can't do the A. So if you're not, if you're not answering, I'm not going to have an interview. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I really don't want to I really don't want to give away too much. I said, why? Because he said, because I've just signed up to do a book. And I said, well, but, oh, so what was so what was the toughest question you remember asking him in that piece? Remember, I've never seen that. I've never seen that Playboy magazine, except except the cover on the walls. Right. Understand that piece that you that he has on the wall. Understand that that piece he has on the wall of the Playboy interview. I didn't do. So let me just finish this story and you'll understand why. So he says to me, I'm there assigned to do this Playboy piece. He says, I really don't want to, I don't want to say too much. And I said, why not? He said, because I've signed a book and I want to save it for that. And I said, what's the book about? And he said, well, it's my autobiography. And I said, well, you don't have an autobiography yet. You're like, you're 37 years old. What are you going to write about? And he said, yeah, yeah, I know, but they paid me a lot of money. I'm going to do it. And I said, well, if I were you, and this was just spontaneous, if I were you and you're going to write a book, you're determined to write a book, I call it the art of the deal because people are interested in what you have to say about deals. I don't think they're so interested in your life. And he said, I like that. You want to do it? And that literally was in a 20-second back and forth. By the way, it's the same way that he ended up hiring me. It's he's spontaneous with stuff like that. Now, I do have to ask you, though, because the um, the deal that you guys um, agreed upon was kind of unusually favorable as a ghostwriter. For the art of the deal. Can you tell us what the split was? Yeah. So, um, yeah. The t- and the reason I asked that question is because I was involved in dealing with so many of the follow up books thereafter. Yeah, nobody and got paid. Of course, which nobody got paid, nobody got paid anything. I mean, he yeah. had Meredith McIver, you know, writing them. And um, I mean, she got zero basically yeah. for doing it. So I'm just curious, you know, if yeah. you could reveal what your split was with him. So my split was 50 50. I said to my agent, my literary agent, look, let me negotiate this. I have a feel. I should have had you negotiate my working contract. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I thought I was the fixer. Yeah, well, I didn't want to be the fixer, but I did want to have an outcome on that deal that would make it, that would somehow justify in my mind having doing something that I already realized violated my own values, that I was going to be writing and creating a portrait of a guy whose values I found, even then, Michael, reprehensible. Um, 
and look, of course, this is the this is the, the, the one of the very very big events of my life and turning points is the decision to do it. Why did I do it? I was 32 years old, and none of this is to rationalize it. It's just to say, explain it. I was 32 years old. I had one daughter who was three and another child on the way. I owned an, I had just purchased an apartment that I couldn't really afford. I was struggling to make the mortgage payments. And this was a payoff, assuming I got a good deal, a payoff that would give me in one deal that it would take me, you know, a year's worth of work, more money than I'd earned in five years as a journalist. And with the upside of uh, earning much more if the book were to succeed. So I made that choice to do it. Remember, it wasn't Donald Trump, the president of the United States. It was Donald Trump, a kind of uh, uh, mid-level real estate developer who I didn't imagine would go anywhere other than where he'd already been. But nonetheless, I knew who he was and I chose to do it. And, uh, you know, that's what I have uh, spent the last 30 years of my life a feeling that I've been doing in part, I've been doing penance for that. I've been building a life. Tony, was it because your parents were horrified about the prospect of you writing that book? Because in your memoir, you speak about how writing it was actually a rebellion um, that yeah. dealt with your mother. Isn't that bizarre? I didn't realize that, Michael, until um, I wrote the memoir. So 30 years went by without my recognizing that a big part of my motivation to write that book was to stick my finger in my mother's eye. So just to set the stage for that, the book is called Dealing with the Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me. So uh, it's, it, the influence of my mother is a central part of that book. So my mother was a uh, very progressive slash liberal social activist who believed in, you know, making an equality and in making the world better for people who it were, were oppressed. And, you know, she certainly saw, imagined and hoped that I would become the, uh, you know, the carrier of, uh, I would carry on that tradition. And she hated Trump. Um, even then, she mostly knew about him because of me, but she, she was appalled by him for all the obvious reasons one would be. And so, yes, she was very unhappy that I decided to write that book. And as I say, only 30 years later did I realize that this very, I described a mother publicly as a social activist, a person of great, um, very admirable, even, even in my mind, today, or especially in my mind today. See, I find that interesting that your mom was so open with you. You know, my parents were somewhat different. My dad's a head and neck reconstructive surgeon. My mom was a surgical nurse. Then with four kids, really became a stay-at-home mom until we were old enough to take care of ourselves. And my parents never really expressed anything about Trump up until the point when he made the statements about Mexico, when he came down the escalator and made that very famous statement about Mexicans. Now, you have to remember that my mom's mom was born in Argentina, um, and she just found the fact that he can say something so openly and so stupidly, she was like, 
how, how, why, what are you doing, right? I mean, how did you just stand there? Why didn't you just walk away? And I said, you know, look, mom, it's my job, right? And she goes, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like this. And that was kind of a turning point for my mom. But I find it interesting that your mom was so open with you about a project that, in all fairness, I'm not sure that any other writer in the world would have turned down either. I mean, the prospect, say whatever you want about Donald Trump, even in the early stages. You know, the guy had just probably picked up 40 Wall Street for a song and a dance. He was constantly in the news. So it's, you know, I, I give your mom a lot of kudos. It's, it's a lot of props to your mom yeah. for being so and, vocal with you. And to make it now make sense that I would have wanted to rebel against her, given the positive things I've just said, my mother's way of being in the world was very different than her way of being a mother. And as a mother, she was severely critical, uh, easily enraged, uh, stuff that actually re reminds me of Trump, um, and uh, very difficult, very similar uh, in terms of the impact on my sense of self-worth to the impact of Fred Trump on Donald's self-worth, denigrating, you know. Uh, and so I really wanted to separate myself from my mother. I wanted to, you know, what they call in psychology, individuate, but I, I wanted to make my own mark. And writing a book with Trump was certainly making my own mark. I just didn't. Right, but, but Tony, the early process of you interviewing Trump for the book must have been frustrating as all hell. What did you learn early on, and how did it set up your expectations for the rest of the project? Well, what I learned early on was that he was lying when he said to me that he wasn't answering my questions for the Playboy interview because he wanted to save them for the book. He wasn't answering my questions because he doesn't, didn't have anything to say or very little to say. You know, Trump's had this experience of, uh, you know, people don't talk about this as much as about some of his other qualities, but he has what I assume is a severe ADHD. He is incapable of paying attention to almost anything for long, for even a, even a modest period of time. I used to think that it was ADD. I'm not 100% certain it is. I think it's, he just doesn't give a shit. I think it goes way past, now it could be a combination of both. But if you don't give him the deal in 30 seconds or less, you've lost his attention. No matter, no matter what the deal is, no matter how big or how small. But yet, I've sat in his office talking about fucking golf for 30 minutes, 35 minutes. When he talks sports, I have a lot of friends who are sports figures. And one of them came into the office. They had just won the Super Bowl. He played for the Giants, my buddy Steve Weatherford. And I wanted to introduce Trump to my friend. So he sat down. He invited him to the office because Trump is very gracious that way. And 45, 50 minutes went by. And I'm sitting to myself, scratching my head and saying, holy fuck. 45, 50 minutes. I sat with him on a deal that would have netted the Trump org, you know, 10 figures. And I couldn't get, and I couldn't get from him more than a minute. I mean, it's, it's, it's really wild. So is it, is it ADD 
or it's just, I just don't give a shit. Just do it. And if you screw up, you know I'm going to fire you. I mean, that's something he used to say all the time, not just to me, but to the kids too. You're all just a one day away from being fired for a fuck up. Here, here's my answer to your question um, or, or to your point. I think that it's more complex than a diagnosis like ADHD can capture. And that's what you're alluding to. And the reason it's more complex is, you know, kids with ADD can sometimes concentrate for hours on a video game. For Trump, the equivalent of a video game is anything that is making him feel better about himself. So if he's talking about golf or if he's talking about a deal he's doing that involves what he's bringing to it, I agree with you and I saw that he could actually stay with it for a significant period of time. I mean, think of this, Michael, and I bet you have. Think of this as, you know, I said a balloon that's leaking or a glass of water, you know, a glass that has a crack in it. And you're constantly losing the resource that keeps you alive. And so when he could pour that back into himself, if somebody was just sitting there praising him, he would be quite capable of listening to that. And he would join in in the praise. And I think that's because it was a lifesaver for him. For anything else, I don't think it was, I don't give a shit. It's, it's not urgent for me because you're not filling me up and meanwhile, I'm continuing to leak. So while, of course, this interviewing process was clearly, clearly difficult for you, you then ended up deciding to follow Trump to Mar-a-Lago, where you asked him even more questions, and then he threw one of his usual Trump temper tantrums, which then caused you to have to find a new way into the book, which ultimately became the real basis for the art of the deal. Explain that process, because I've been through it with deals and, and in conversations with him that you have to backdoor something in order to get it done. Tell me about this experience with the art of the deal. So I, I went to Mar-a-Lago because I wasn't getting what I needed from him. Uh, and I thought if I was hanging around him all weekend long, I could get a bunch of hours of interviewing done. He was... Uh, impatient, and then, you know, uh, as you said, through a temper tantrum within minutes of starting to ask him questions. Um, and so what I, what I thought first was... There you are, writing this book, The Art of the Deal, which is about Donald J. Trump, and he's throwing a temper tantrum because you're asking questions for a book that he's a 50-50 partner on. It's just... To me, it's just batshit crazy. Yeah, it's batshit crazy. And, and you know this, he brings you so deeply into his craziness that when you're in it, you're not saying to yourself, this is freaking crazy. You're just responding because he's coming at you in a particular way, sort of the way that Biden must have felt when, during the debate, where he's just in your face and so you're thinking, well, how do I deal with this? Okay, maybe he's right. He's, he's a partner in this book, and it's a book for him. But maybe I'm asking questions that I, I didn't question then, Michael, whether it was reasonable to ask him questions. I questioned whether I could get the book done if I kept doing that. So my solution was just go and sit in his office 
pick up the phone, the extension phone, and listen in on his conversations because he's never really, quote, working. He's just talking on the phone. Right. So Trump then let you listen in on how he conducted his phone calls with um, a various group of business associates or whoever else was actually on the other line. Now, this is something that I can compare notes to. And when you finish, I'm going to compare um, a similar story. But describe for me, if you would, your reporter's view of him working the phones and how he dealt with people. Yeah, so the first word that comes into my head is dominate. Um, you know, and in the way that you alluded to that I have written, that I, I have said, which is, you know, either the person on the phone is the greatest or the person's about to get dumped, fired, cheated. And he's a, you know, he is a force of nature. And his way of being on the phone was to be on a call until it started to bore him, which was often very, very quickly. And also, throughout this process, his then devoted secretary or assistant, Norma Foderer, would walk in and out of the office with a little uh, post-it note saying who was on the line uh, waiting. And if the person on the line waiting was more interesting to him than the person he was talking to, it was, hey, great to talk to you. You're the greatest. You're the greatest. Goodbye. And so what I was watching was not so much, uh, I mean, yes, th th I was getting a sense of who he was as a character, but really what I was listening for was what, what the other people were saying so I could fill in all the gaps that he wasn't providing me with in order to be able to write the book. Right, because I can go on for hours, but this is exactly what happened with me when Roger Stone was on the line. Rona came in with a sticky, yelled out, Mr. Trump, uh, Roger Stone on line one, and this is what I had testified to. Lo and behold, he puts it on the speakerphone. So it's interesting that Trump's early days, he allowed people to listen. The only difference, though, is we never did it using another phone. He just put it up on the speaker box. But, Tony... As we all know, that Trump is a notorious and a dangerous liar. And he lies like the way he breathes. It's just easy for him. It's just natural. But in all fairness, Tony, you were the first to help package his lying into an acceptable face. And I'll read you now the passage that you wrote in The Art of the Deal for Trump that essentially created the monster that we know. People want to believe that something is the biggest and greatest and the most spectacular. I call it truthful hyperbole. It's an innocent form of exaggeration, and it's a very effective form of promotion. Now, you've since disavowed the writing of that as something beyond deceit. How do you think it helped ignore others into accepting the lies that he tells every single day? Well, I don't think that the actual sentence that I wrote so first of all, I wrote it defensively, honestly, Michael. So I'm listening in on all these calls, and then I'm calling these people and asking them questions uh, to follow up about these deals, and they're telling me things totally different than Trump said to me previously. And so I, I, I become aware that I'm hearing a lot of lies, and it, I'm, I don't know how to solve it since this is what he wants to say, and that phrase, truthful hyperbole, occurs to me. And then I write, write about it the way I do. I don't think it actually, the phrase, had much effect on people. I think 
I mean, I think they, you know, they, they laughed or they nodded. But I think what did have an effect on people was uh, the style that that represented, which is, um, I'm going to say whatever the hell I want to say, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over again. And he taught that, by the way, to his children. He taught that to his children. As you may remember, Don and Ivanka had some very serious problems with the, um, with the authorities here based on Trump Soho for exactly that, this bullshit hyperbole about the amount of um, units that were sold and, and so on. I mean, it almost cost them their freedom. How they escaped that one, that's one that I was tangentially involved. I'd still like to know the answer to that. But Tony, you reflected upon making Trump something palatable to the masses as your biggest regret. Yes. I, I, I regret it because I, 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 I not only did I create uh, uh, an image, a myth that I knew wasn't true, but I also was violating, as I said earlier in our conversation, violating, you know, my own basic values. Um, and, you know, Michael, this experience that I, to this day, and you probably do too, I believe that I was a factor in Trump's eventually becoming president by having written that book and created that uh, persona. Um, but it was ironically also a strange gift to me to write that book. And when I say gift, I don't mean in terms of the money I earned from it. I mean that it was so upsetting to me and so disorienting that it really made me completely rethink my life, which I had focused on what will it take for me to be more successful? What will it take me for me to earn enough money that I'm really financially comfortable? All of those things that are kind of classic American dream things um, that I believe uh, were important to but me. But that's what the art of the deal was, Tony. It's because it's the only book in my life that I've read twice in 1987 when I was a junior in college. I read it twice. It sat on my nightstand. And for me, I read it and I said, wow, there are things in this book that I, I can really appreciate, that understanding what it means to be an entrepreneur and having that entrepreneurial spirit. And everybody in America wants to be financially secure and they, and they, they want to achieve the American dream. I mean, I, that's, that's America in and of itself. But, but I'm going to push back on you. Um, that is an American dream. It is by no means the only potential dream. It, Not it, the only, but it's certainly an American dream. And you touch on that one aspect. And you touch on it very well in the book, which is what made it into such a success. Right. But here's what I've learned, Michael, is that to the degree that you get your sense of wealth, of, of self-worth from how much money you earn, you know, you have right now much more, I don't know what's happened to you as a result of- Destroyed, destroyed as a result, financially, emotionally, destroyed. You know, look, that merits a whole other conversation, but let me just, just make this one point that to the degree that you bet your, bet your self-worth on how much money you have or what, what famous people you know or what events you can get into, 
yeah, that could be fun, but it's like eating sugar. You know, it's a high very briefly, and then it just fades. And what I've been able to discover in the 30 years since then is a way of confronting all of who I am, good and bad, and looking from within myself to ask the question over and over again, how can I be of value in the world? What can I do to contribute? And the payback for that, Michael, is that I feel genuinely good about the contributions I've been able to make over the last 30 years in a way that don't, won't go away. I own that. It, I did that. I feel that. All the rest of the stuff, it's gone. It's, it, it, it can come and it can go. I, you know, I, I'm perfectly comfortable living at whatever level financially now happens to be possible. I actually don't want to live in a way that is beyond what I need, um, you know, reasonably, because I don't. But that's the American dream I was referring to, Tony. The American dream. I don't. I don't like you. I don't put a dollar value on the American dream. You don't have to be worth a billion dollars to be an American success. You don't have to be um, friends with you know the most uh, high celebrated celebrities out there to be popular. That's not. That wasn't the point I was making. The point I was making was that whatever makes you comfortable being financially secure to live the life that you want to lead and to live it with quality and with character. Yes, I totally agree with you on that. I did also want to touch on uh, the chapters that de were dedicated in your book to Roy Cohn. They're especially chilling now that we look back on everything. Now, to those who don't know, Roy Cohn was a very notorious attorney um, that represented Trump early on, and he was dying of AIDS when you came to the project, and he was abandoned, I mean, just discarded by Trump. If you can, describe your dealings with Cohn or how Trump dealt with the subject of Roy Cohn. Well, Trump revered Roy Cohn so long as Roy Cohn was of value to him. He, like everybody. Yes. He... Um, was uh, he was he's pre he was homophobic. So the the idea that Roy Cohn was gay and especially that he got AIDS made him untouchable, literally and figuratively, to Trump. So whatever positive feelings he had about what Cohn could give him were undermined by the fact that Cohn had you know I, I, I'm going to say this isn't really what it's about. Had cooties, Cohn had a disease that Trump found repulsive. Uh, led him to just abandon a guy he who had been there for him. The problem with Trump at that time is like with the same thing he did with COVID, which he's now afflicted with. He doesn't read. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't believe in science. He was and is to this day under the belief that you can transmit AIDS just by being in somebody's presence. And yep. that's what freaked him out about Roy Cohn. He's ignorant to the concept of science. He believed that if somebody touched his fork, that he could have gotten AIDS, which is why he completely walked away from Roy Cohn, despite all the things that he had him do. It's very costly, Michael, when you don't know anything. And he knows so little about so much. 
and 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 there is nothing about which he knows a lot. Um, it's so that is a, a fundamental uh, limit. It's a character flaw. Yeah, character flaw. But Tony, also in your book, you describe a very extravagant book release party for Art of the Deal that was followed by a very Trump-like request that I was tasked on so many occasions to do that you should help to pay for it. Describe the moment for me when he asked you to pay for this extravagant yeah, so book release. Yeah, so what, you know, 1,500 people in Trump Tower, and it was put together by the Studio 54 owners, Steve Rubell and Ian Traeger, and, you know, it was a red carpet and, you know, champagne being passed around. It was... But it, it had to call, had to have cost you know several hundred thousand dollars, um, and the next day when he wanted called to debrief it, he said, "By the way, Tony, you know you got to pay for fifty percent of this." And my, and what was your response? Well, my first reaction <laughs> was, "That's funny." Yeah, I, you know, we're both laughing. Like, are you kidding me? That's a funny joke, Donald. But as you've said, Donald Trump never jokes. He never. doesn't joke. He does Ever. not joke. So I go, yeah, Donald, come on. And he goes, no, you're going to have to. Hey, you're getting half the royalties from this book. You, you're, you, you should have to pay half the cost. Of the did book. you ask him if you were entitled to half the people in the room? Well, I did very specifically say to him, Donald, there were 1,500 people there. If you even include my accountant who was there and my dry cleaner, I had 22 <laughs> of them. I said, so uh, the idea that- <laughs> You go on, you want to now go with him and start paying it per capita? Yeah. Like- <laughs> The idea that uh, I would have ever in a million years had a party like this is absurd. And what I ended up doing, you know, Michael, that was the second time I negotiated. I negotiated with him three times. The first time was when he gave me half the book, which, which yes, that was good for me. The second time was uh, over that uh, party because I couldn't talk him out of it. He would have considered it loss of his, you know, of his pride if I had not paid. So I talked him into accepting some very modest sum which I insisted I would give to a charity of my choice because he had said up to that point, I'm going to give all the royalties away. Of course, he gave none of them away. And the third time he, I negotiated with him was when he asked me to do the second book. And he came to me and I had zero intention of doing it and no amount would have made it possible. Let me just say- So that's, that's actually my final question to you, Tony. Okay. Right? Now, you were offered close to a million dollars to write the sequel to The Art of the Deal. But you turned it down. I did. How come? I mean, you do understand that few people would turn something like that down, regardless of whether or not you're repulsed by him or not. Because I regained my uh, my soul. I reconnected to my soul. And there was no way that I could feel comfortable with myself spending another year around Donald Trump, much less being aligned with him. I could certainly understand that point. I, you know, I too, through my book and through this podcast, I've actually found my moral compass. I found my purpose. And really my purpose is to make amends with my wife, my daughter, my son, and the country. Because like you, just, I see myself as Dr. Frankenstein because I did very much in real life that you put into the art of the deal where I created an image. I thought of myself really as a painter. And I took an ugly painting and I whitewashed it. And my hope was that I would paint something beautiful. 
but it turns out I painted something that's fucking uglier than the original painting and more dangerous than the original painting. But Tony, I want to thank you for, you know, for your time. I want to thank you for your honesty. And um, we're going to do some more television together. That was a lot of fun. So it was good to see you. What you just described is, is our common ground. Here's, here's my, my last suggestion to you. You'll feel really great if you take the, uh, some of those royalties that you're earning and give them to causes that will help other people. I hope you will. Well, I actually say that in the first set, the ones that were signed, that there's a portion of those proceeds of the Good. profit that is going uh, to socially conscious organizations. All right. But thank you, Tony. To be continued, Michael. I enjoyed To be continued. You got it. Bye-bye. The first tweet of the day is somebody who I follow. Yep, it's Barbara Streisand, at Barbara Streisand. And in her tweet, she writes, He, meaning Donald Trump, has really infected us all. Our spirit, our health, our decency, our democracy. It's criminal what he's done to this country. I'm not sure anybody can say it better, so I'm not even going to try, other than to say, this is exactly what Donald Trump wants to do. He wants to divide us. He wants to infect our decency and how we behave to one another. The next tweet comes from at Mangold. And it says, at Michael Cohen 212. Michael, how are you? Congrats on the book. Here's the question. Have you ever discussed the pharmacological reasons DJT's eyes are always so dilated? Well, Mangold, let me say this, and I've said this many times. There are many things that Donald Trump does that's wrong, one of which is he's not a drug addict. He does not take drugs. He doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. So why his eyes are dilated, I can't give you a reason for that. But what I can tell you is that he cannot blame his psychosis. He cannot blame his mental condition on drugs. That's innate. And thanks for asking your questions. And I'll keep talking about your tweets on each and every one of the podcasts. And now, today's mea culpa. Tony Schwartz calls the seven-figure checks he received from writing Art of the Deal blood money. I don't disagree, but I also can't judge him too harshly. The hindsight of history indicts many of us for crimes we could not have possibly foreseen. Besides, there was no fucking way Schwartz could have predicted that the lying, self-aggrandizing buffoon for whom he'd written an ego-stroking autobiography would ever become president of the United States. Something so patently absurd, it was used as an arc for a 2008 Simpsons episode. As you know, we've inherited quite a budget crunch from President Trump. How bad is it, Secretary Van Houten? We're broke. Ultimately, we know what happened. I'm not going to do a political analysis of how and why Trump became president. But one of the reasons may be the monster unleashed by Art of the Deal. The ability to lie, shamelessly, 100% of the time, became Donald Trump's ultimate superpower. By creating the concept of truthful hyperbole, Tony Schwartz had granted Trump a license to lie. And over the years, he conditioned the American public through constant, non-stop coverage to accept his falsehoods. 
all of it spoon-fed to willing reporters and disseminated through the tabloids and cable TV. Trump may be the first Twitter president, but he is a creature and construct of cable television. His genius was his innate understanding of how the medium amplified certain narratives through sheer repetition. This started not with Trump declaring another witch hunt or hoax or bogus crowd size or any of the dozen scandals or crises from his presidency, nor did it start with the Bertha movement, but in the dozens of daily trespasses he committed against the truth in the service of his public persona as he grew in power. By the time he reached the presidency, his willingness to step far outside the bounds of ethical or moral behavior placed him that much farther outside public constraint. He became unstoppable. The current number of known lies hovers over 20,000. He's a super spreader of misinformation about COVID-19. But these, I view these, and now they call them therapeutic. But to me, it wasn't therapeutic. It just made me better, okay? I call that a cure. And we're all complicit. I more than most because I fucking lied for him and constantly perpetuating Bertha stories and covering up his misdeeds to gullible reporters. But for Trump, it started with the release of that book. It may be too late to stop the damage, but we can nonetheless sound the alarm. We can deprive him of the oxygen he needs to survive and thrive, which feeds off his lies and misinformation. Thanks for listening. Maya Culp was brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. It's so great to finally be able to get together again. Oh, it sure is. And I really appreciate you picking up the bill. I'm happy to. I've got the extra cash. Since we've all been driving so much more again, I've been using GetUpside, the free gas app that pays you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get paid cash when you buy gas with the GetUpside app? Yes, up to 25 cents a gallon. 
cash back every time I buy gas. Does that actually add up to anything? Some months I make 200 to 300 bucks. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the free GetUpside app now. Download the free GetUpside app now in the App Store or Google Play to save up to 25 cents a gallon when you buy gas. Use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's up to 50 cents a gallon on your next fill-up. You can cash out anytime to PayPal or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code FILL. 